0: well we are in our series on assurance and in this series we've been asking and trying to answer the question how do i know for sure that i'm saved and what if i struggle with doubt what if i'm afraid that on that day that i stand before the judge that i might not be let into his kingdom How do we deal with these things? And I have experienced over the last few weeks having preached these sermons and gotten feedback that this is a far more uh, usual and common situation where we have believers who understand the gospel, know the truths there, understand the sound doctrine. There's not any doubt about who God is or His love or His salvation and what he accomplished on the cross there's no doubting that god is a savior that christ is a redeemer that he actually died and rose again none of those things are doubted but there has been in many people's hearts this doubting that they share in that grace or this lingering and maybe way back in your mind this thought that maybe I'm not right with God. So we've talked about that in the lives of various people throughout history and this morning I want to point you to a man that you might already already know and maybe you've read some of his books named Jerry Bridges. If you know who Jerry Bridges is you can just nod your head if you know who Jerry Bridges is. In uh, kind of the evangelical world his books are read by thousands. He's Written over a dozen of them, classics like Trusting God, like The Pursuit of Holiness, or The Discipline of Grace. He's written fantastic books. If you ever were in a relationship with a person that you felt you could help spiritually and you thought, hey, maybe I could read a book with this person, uh, Jerry Bridges would help you out. He's written such helpful classic books that are great for Christians who want to grow in sanctification, to pursue holiness. Now one of the reasons I think Jerry Bridges is so effective and powerful in the books that he has written is because he has struggled mightily with his own faith. Again, not that he doubted the things about God, not that he doubted the truth about Christ, but that he doubted he was in himself truly believing and truly saved and regenerate. He tells stories of how he was so convicted about the depths of his own sinfulness that he felt there's no possible way that I could be right with God. In his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, he tells a story about how early in his Christian life he was leading a Bible study on Monday nights. It was at a military base about an hour from where he lived. And so he would, on Monday nights, get in his car and he'd make the long drive out to this military base and he would lead these these men in this Bible study, and he would teach them from God's Word, and he would pray with them, and he would shepherd them. He was kind of like their pastor, this this little group of people that had come to him for some spiritual guidance. And on the way home, he would get in his car, and he'd begin that hour-long journey home. In describing his experience on the drive home, he writes, every Monday night, as I left the fellowship of that Bible study, Satan would begin to attack me. How can anyone who's having the struggles you're having be a Christian? He would ask. I began to fight him by resorting to an old gospel hymn which begins, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me to come to Thee, O Lamb of God, I come." He goes on, I would sing. I would sing through that hymn. And by the time I finished, I would be praising God for His salvation given freely to me through Jesus Christ. And then he kind of turns to the reader and he says to you and to us, whoever's reading the book, he says, you too, if you diligently pursue holiness, must often flee to the rock of your salvation. If you're a Christian, you know that's true because you've made that flight to the rock of your salvation. Now the reason I've been telling stories of people like Martin Luther and David Brainerd and Charles Spurgeon and now Jerry Bridges is because my hope and in telling these stories, I'm convincing you that this is kind of common for Christians. That if you've been someone who has felt some of these questions lingering, bubbling up into the surface of your heart, that you might say, well, I'm not alone. In fact, this room, I'm sure there are more people than you think that have those questions and have faced those doubts. And if not right now, those doubts maybe not are currently at the forefront of their mind. I'm sure they've faced them in the past. And so I want to make sure, as I prayed this morning, that we are a church family that is open. That if you've ever faced these doubts or fears or anxieties or worries about your standing with God, that you would not be ashamed to talk about it and that you would feel welcome uh, in in this community of grace that we can talk about these things together. Well, this morning I want to focus on one particular aspect of our fight for assurance. I want to focus on the reality that most of the time when we lack assurance, the reason is because we have believed some lies. I want to talk about the lies we believe. I want to talk about those lies that are kind of like acid to the assurance. They, they maybe come in unnoticed. They maybe slip into your heart, slip into your mind, and they begin to corrode your sense of confidence that you're right with God. Some of these lies are baked into our systematic theology. Sometimes we believe things that are actually going against our assurance. We might believe that we are not supposed to have assurance. We might believe that God wants to keep us guessing so that we'll be motivated to just work harder and work harder and work harder. There are some systems that believe that. Uh, Many of us, it's not that, we have sound doctrine, We, we believe the right stuff, we are committed to Scripture, but somewhere in the unarticulated back of our mind, we have this propensity, it's more of a reflex of the heart, to doubt. We slide into these lies unintentionally, we believe them without articulating them. And I want this sermon to kind of function like a flashlight. We're going to take the flashlight of these biblical truths, we're going to shine it on these statements, and we're going to see if we have in our hearts grabbed hold of some of these unhelpful lies. I want us to see it, and I wonder if as we go through four lies that we believe that affect our assurance negatively, I wonder if some of you will go, that's me, that's what I do, I've gone there, I believe that, and here's the thing, what, what are the most effective lies? Which, which are the most effective lies that tend to get a place in people's minds? Is it the obvious stuff? Is it the stuff that's just right out there, it's quite patently not true? Of course not. Poison is most effective when it's served you on a silver platter, in a beautiful meal that you would love to eat up. A hook is most attractive when it's got the bait all around it, and that bait looks really tasty. And so it is with the lies that we believe, each one of these lies sound very close to being true. In fact, I'm going to read some of these lies as we go through the sermon, and I wonder if some of you will go, oh yeah, I believe that. What's so wrong with that? You might even hear and go, yeah, that's true, of course. Yeah, that's what I've always been taught. And I want to show us through Scripture that there are lies that we have taken to be true that if we let sink into our hearts, they will absolutely strangle your assurance. I want to jump right in. And what we're going to do in this sermon just up front, we're going to take communion at the end of this sermon because one of the things I want to end with is that the solution to assurance is Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to get that out now, and then we're going to come back and hit that again. But the solution is not you looking deeper within, but looking outward to Jesus Christ. And then we're going to corporately remember the finished work of Christ as we take communion. And so let's look at some of these lies. Here's our first one. Lie number one. Jesus loves us, but the Father is against us. Jesus loves us, but the Father is against us. In the early church, there was a man called Marcion. He was recognized as a heretic by the church because he was teaching something that was patently not true. But he had a following. What did he teach? Marcion taught this. He didn't like the God of the Old Testament, He didn't like how harsh it seemed. He felt that the God of the Old Testament was not a God of grace, not a God of love. He was an impatient, rash God. And so Marcion decided to conveniently remove the Old Testament from his Bible. He only wanted to focus on Jesus. Jesus is gracious. Jesus welcomes sinners. Jesus is what I like. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I don't like the Father. The Father is against us. The Son comes to save us from the Father. That was what he taught. The Old Testament God was not someone you wanted to worship, but you could worship Jesus. That was his heresy. The church identified it and dismissed him. And I don't think any of you are sitting here going, but no, I think Marcion was right. Right? None of you are doing that, but here's what I do think is true. That maybe lingering deep down in the back of our minds, we have this idea that the Father doesn't quite love us like the Son does. That the Father is unwilling, but He could be persuaded by Jesus to tolerate you. I think this even starts to work our way into some of the ways we share the gospel. Think about this. God the Father was going to destroy you for your sin until Jesus stepped in and said, No! Is that not how some of us have maybe thought about the Gospel? That God is like this angry Father who just wants to mete out judgment on the sinners and big brother Jesus. Jesus. Enters the picture and says, no, 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 Father, you can't do that. And the Father goes, okay, fine. What are you going to do to make sure that I don't punish them? Oh, I'll do anything. I'll go to the cross. Okay. And there the Father is, unwilling, but okay, I can do this as long as you fix their problem, Jesus. I think that's actually more common than you might think. I think it actually lingers in many minds that the Father actually doesn't love us very much, and that the only reason He loves us is because of what Jesus did and Jesus somehow manipulated the Father to get Him to look at us differently. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and we're going to debunk this. Is the Father against us? We see that the Bible is very clear about the wrath of God, okay? We're not against that teaching. The Bible is so clear that God will punish sin and sinners. We want to be very clear that Jesus entered His creation to take upon Himself the wrath of the Father so that it would not fall on His children. Yes, we believe that. But I do not want you to believe that the Father and the Son are opposed to each other and somehow the Son's got to wrangle these people from out of the Father's wrath in order to save them. Romans chapter 3, look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You guys follow this so far, right? We're all sinners. We fall short of God's glory. We can be justified by God's grace through Christ, verse 25, watch this, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God put Christ forward. Who put Christ forward? The Father. In other words, the Father sees sinful humanity and responds in grace by sending His Son. Turn your page to go to chapter 5 in Romans. We looked at this last week, but I want to reiterate it because you go to chapter 5, verse 8, and this is talking about the accomplishment of Christ on the cross. The great demonstration of love. And look at verse 8. But God, that is the Father, shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see the logic here? It doesn't say, but Christ died shows His love for us and that we were still sinners. Christ died for us, although certainly that would be true. Christ's death is a demonstration of His own love for us, but it says, God the Father loves us. God the Father loves us so deeply that He sent Jesus Christ to die and the Son went willingly on the mission of the Father to redeem His people. It doesn't say, again, notice the logic, it doesn't say that Christ died for us then God was persuaded to love us. It says the Father loved us. He loved His people and wanted to save His children. And that's why Christ came. And the death of Christ on the cross is a picture of the love of the Father. And of course the Son. But don't miss the Father has sent the Son to save sinners. See, see this is is so important. It's the Father who moves with compassion for you. It's the Father who wants to save sinners. God is described as a Savior. God is described as one who does not desire that any should perish. Sinclair Ferguson, in his fantastic book, The Whole Christ, bit technical at times, but fantastic, he says this about this very issue. He says, The subtle danger... Here, should be obvious. If we speak of the cross of Christ as the cause of the love of the Father, we may imply that behind the cross and apart from it, He may not actually love us at all. A few pages later, he, he wrote this paragraph that stopped me in my tracks, brought me to my knees, and caused me to worship. He, he said, if this is, is the atmosphere in which we understand the Gospel. A suspicion of the Father may linger long and prove to be a serious hindrance in the course of the Christian life. While often dormant in our souls, from time to time the thought will erupt that perhaps the Father Himself in Himself does not love us like the Son does. Such a disposition leads to a spirit of suspicion and even of bondage and not one of freedom and joy. I had to repent after reading that of how frequently I have put the Father against the Son That I have thought that the Father only loved because of what Jesus did, that there was not an inherent love, but the Bible clearly teaches that the reason the Son came was because of the inherent love of the Father, that the Father is filled with love for his people. What do you think the Father is like? Are you suspicious? of the Father's love for you? Do you at times think that the Father does not love you like Jesus does? It's completely true that our sins had to be forgiven by the death of Christ. It's completely true that those outside of Christ who are not trusting Him will face God's righteous judgment. But It's not true that the Father was against us and the Son was for us. Now if we Go down that road. If that lie is taking root in our hearts and minds, here's some of the things it will do to you. Here's some of the ways you know you might believe this lie, is that you think that God the Father is naturally stingy. He's not generous. He withholds support from you. There are sometimes He will not provide for you, though you know you need provision. You might feel that God is that way, that you might be going through very difficult situations, but you feel that God will abandon you during those times. It's the suspicion of the Father's love that is at the heart of so many of our anxieties. And some of us are are thinking that God's up there with this eagle eye looking down at all of the details of our life. And He's trying to point out all the, the technicalities that can disqualify us. I was reminded as I was studying for this. This is a silly example, you might say. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You seen this movie? The old one, not the weird new ones. The old one. <laughs> At the end of the movie, they come up to Willy Wonka. And they've won, right? They've, they've, they've done the thing. They've earned the prize. They get the lifetime supply of chocolate. And the grandpa goes... Hey Willy Wonka, where's the prize? Uh, how do we get the prize? Remember how Wonka replies? You don't get it. You broke the rules. They're they're shocked. They go, what rules? What? We didn't. We weren't told there were any rules. What what rules? And Walker replies, under section 37B of the contract signed by him, it states quite clearly that offers shall become null and void. If you can read this all for yourself, and he holds up this thing. It's got all this tiny print. And he goes, basically, on the existence of this technicality, and because of this one thing you did, you don't get the prize. And that's how the movie ends. They walk out, and go like, What? Based on this technicality that was never explained, you're not going to give me the prize? And sometimes we Christians think that God is like that. He's got some technicality somewhere. And we're going to come to heaven. And he's going to go, oh yeah, you forgot this one little part. Let me, let me show you. You, you. you thought that faith was enough. You thought that this was right. You thought this, but there's this one technicality that you thought. Almost as if God is just looking for a way to withhold from you. And God is not that way. He is generous. He is kind. He is a Savior. And He loves to save sinners. Don't believe the lie that the Father is against you. Don't believe the lie that the Son and the Father are opposed. You come to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, you can do that right now by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, turning from your old life, turning from your self-righteousness. You could trust in Jesus Christ, and you will understand afresh the great depths of the love of the Father for you. But don't believe the lie that He is against you. Lie number two. I must repent before I can come to Jesus. I must repent before I can come to Jesus. You say, wait a second, repentance is part of the gospel. Didn't Jesus teach repentance? Jesus' first sermons, you could say, were, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is repentance an appropriate response to the gospel? Absolutely, without question. Does God call for repentance? Absolutely, all throughout Scripture. Is repentance a part of the gospel? That if you remove repentance, it is no longer the gospel. Yes, a gospel without repentance is a false gospel. But listen to how I phrased the lie. Did you catch it? I must repent before I come to Jesus. And the reason that's a lie is because it convinces people that they must clean up their act before they're welcome to come to Jesus. And there are people who come to church because they're trying to do this very thing. They're coming because they know that this is the good thing for them to do. They need a little more Jesus in their life. They need a little more Bible in their life. They need a little more church in their life. And maybe if I do enough Bible, do enough church, do enough worship, have enough of this religiosity stuff going on, then I'm clean and then God will accept me. Then I've repented enough and Jesus will accept me. And that is a lie from Satan. Because nowhere does God call people to clean themselves up first and then He will accept them. He calls them, if they want to be clean, to come Repentance is coming, so you come with your filth and you come with your burdens, you come with your sin, and you come to Jesus. and Jesus, it was said of him that this man eats and drinks is with sinners. It was said of Jesus that this man receives them. You come into Jesus' presence with your burdens, and He washes you clean. The very act of coming to him by faith is repentance. It is not something you do before you come to Jesus. Go to Luke 15. We have to see this in Scripture. The parable of the prodigal son. This is a fantastic illustration. Let's start in verse 17. He comes to himself, this prodigal son who had wasted all the father's inheritance. He'd, he'd in his mind, broken their relationship with his father. He'd gone off to this far country. He'd wasted so much of his life. And he goes, all right, I got to go back to my father. It says he's come to himself. He says, listen to this, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, now listen, he's about to give his speech, right? His I'm sorry speech. So, okay, I got to, I got to you know say something to him to get back in his good graces he's not going to receive me so I got to come up with something to say to him look what he says I will say to him father I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son treat me as one of your servants one of your hired servants now that's not him saying it that's him rehearsing what he's about to say Essentially, you can imagine him thinking, okay, he's not going to receive me as a son. That's, this is what the servant's thinking, or the, the son is thinking. He's not going to receive me as a son. I've blown that. Okay, I already blew that one. But he might receive me as a servant. And I might, it might be that I go and I serve and I serve and I, I do enough. And then maybe like I can be part of the family again. Maybe I can earn my way back in. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But he's thinking he's got to clean himself up a little bit, and then the father can take him back in. You see that? I'll work, I'll serve. I'll come back, I'll do these things, and the father, maybe you can accept me after I clean myself up. And he says, verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, he starts to rehearse his speech. It's like the father is just so overwhelmed. The son came home. He came home. I'm going to love him. I'm going to embrace him. And he's like, wait, I got the speech. Hold on, hold on, dad. Uh, a father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Look at verse 22. It's actually is kind of humorous. There's a, there's a con, conjunction there. But it's, like, it's almost like he cuts him off. It's like the father is like listening to the son. like try to tell the sob story about he's sad. And I'm going to try to do this. I'm really going to try to make, make it up for you. And I'm, I'm going to serve. And the father just goes, no, hold on, no. Bring the robe. Bring, the, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's celebrate. Did he have to earn his way back into sonship? Did he, was his repentance, I will serve, I will serve, and then you'll bring the robe, and then you'll bring the ring, then you'll clothe me, then you'll treat me like a son. What was it? It was He came back. He just came to the Father as a guilty sinner. And right there, the Father received Him. Some of you are thinking, I've got to clean myself up and I can't come to Jesus until I do. And so you got this idea of repentance in your mind. i gotta, I got to repent. Okay, I've got to repent and then I'll be good. So I've got to make sure I do enough. I've got to make sure that I'm feeling bad enough for my sin once i sin i gotta mope a little bit i gotta whip myself on the back i gotta beat myself up then jesus will say oh yeah you you really feel sorry about your sin you can come now you've repented enough i'll let you in the problem with this we start asking the wrong question we begin asking is my repentance good enough you ever ask that is my repentance good enough for God? Will He receive me? Is my repentance, am I sorrowful enough? Am I saying no to sin enough? Am I pursuing righteousness enough? So you start asking, is my repentance good enough the right question? Is my Savior gracious enough? Is my Savior able to save Is He good enough? And of course, what's the answer to all those questions? Of course He is. Of course the Savior is good enough to save you. Your repentance will never measure up to the infinite value of Jesus Christ. It will never be good enough. And so He doesn't call you to make sure you get good enough repentance, then come to Jesus. You come to Jesus with your filth and that is repentance. And you look to Him knowing that you are never going to measure up in humility you say save me forgive me redeem me and he does he always does so don't believe the lie that you got to clean yourself up are you trying that now are you here because you think a little more religion in your life will clean you up and then maybe god will accept you you got too much of a background, you got too much filth right now, you can't come to Him now, but maybe down the road, you clean yourself up a little bit, then He will receive you. Don't believe the lie. Come with your burdens. Come with your sin. Come and lay it at the foot of the cross. See that it is forgiven in Christ. Believe that by faith and walk now in the power of the Spirit in obedience. Here's our third lie. I must have enough faith to be saved. Uh, I've got to have enough faith. It's not just that I have faith. It's, do I have enough faith? Is my faith enough to save me? And some of you that are more self-aware are examining your own faith and you think, man, there's no way my faith is enough. My faith is, is weak. My faith is trembling. Before we get into the discussion about faith we have to just first recognize that so much of the bible is about this right about trusting god about faith in christ but i want to just look a little bit about at some of the verses that talk about faith look at what jesus says you could turn here and just we're going to skip around in some passages to see what the bible says about belief and about faith what does jesus say john three sixteen. you guys know this for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever what believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus taught, whoever believes has eternal life. Two verses later, chapter 3, verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Chapter 6 of John, verse 40, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Do you see what it's saying? Jesus very clearly, whoever believes, whoever looks, whoever trusts, has eternal life. We could move to Paul. You could look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Confess it. Believe it. Chapter 10, verse 13. Listen to this one. Everyone not some, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 10.43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of th- sins through his name. Acts 13.39, by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Romans ten eleven. For the Scripture says, "Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame." First John chapter five verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Could, we could keep going. Do you guys get the point? What is it saying is required for eternal life, for salvation, for the new birth? Belief. Believe upon Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. Now listen, this is a promise from God. You've broken a promise. I've broken a promise. We've all broken promises. God has never broken a single promise. And He extends a promise, and here's the promise. Jesus, He will come. He will do everything that's needed for salvation. He will live the perfect life you couldn't live. He will die the death that you deserved. He will conquer death. On the third day, He will rise again. He will conquer sin. He will conquer Satan. He will conquer death. He will conquer hell. And here's the promise. Everyone who calls upon His name will be saved. Everyone who believes in Him will be saved. Everyone who looks to Him for salvation will be saved. Everyone. And here's the promise then. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Not in some vague, undefined, lovey-dovey, hipster Jesus. I'm talking about the biblical Jesus who has lived for sinners, died for sinners, rose for sinners, is now exalted at the right hand of the Father and now offers full and free forgiveness of sins to everyone who repents and trusts in Him. That Jesus, the Lord of all creation, you trust Him and you are saved. Now notice all those verses that we read about belief and trust and faith do not say anything about the quality or the quantity of your faith. Now, of course, Jesus would tell His disciples, you have such little faith, you've got to grow in your faith. Obviously, we want to grow in our faith. But how much faith is required to save? It's a good question, right? Is there some, like, line that I've got to cross, some threshold? Like, my faith is so weak, it's here. But if I could just get enough faith, oh, okay, I'm saved now. Is that how it works? Like it's just a measure of quantity or quality once my faith is good enough, once my faith is strong enough. I want to give you an example. Turn to Luke 8. This is another kind of humorous example of how gracious, generous, and kind God is. You look at chapter 8, verse 43, and we're talking about the woman in this big crowd. This woman has a discharge of blood. Verse 43, she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she couldn't be healed by anyone. Okay, This poor woman, she's sick, no one can heal her. Verse 44, she came up behind him. (laughs) What great faith! She's sneaking up on him. (laughs) And touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately the discharge of her blood ceased. Now Jesus He's not fooled. He knows something's going on. Verse 45, and Jesus says, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter goes, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. It's like, Jesus, there's a bunch of people touching you. They're all over. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive the power has gone from me. And look at this. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before Him, declared in the presence of all why she touched Him and how she had been immediately healed. I love what Jesus does in response. Verse 48. And He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Faith? We think you got to have this confident assurance, I can come up to Jesus and I will ask Him, save me, heal me, forgive me. Her faith couldn't even look Him in the eye. Her faith couldn't even ask Him up front. Her faith was trying to sneak a healing from sneaking up in the back. She was trembling. She was afraid. And Jesus says, but you trusted. It was the mustard seed of faith that clung to the strong Savior. Think about another example, the thief on the cross. Entire life devoted to rebellion and sin, he has no good works to show for himself. His faith is the faith of a desperate dying man on a cross. And that little grain of faith, he cries out, calls out to that one on the cross next to him in hope that maybe he could save and Jesus says you'll be with me today in paradise the faith was enough to save there's no fine print here you gotta get a certain number of faith, you gotta get this degree of faith, you gotta get this quality, this, this quantity of faith, no it's faith alone, it's just the belief, it's the mustard seed, it's believing in Jesus Christ If it's insane to think that God would be up in heaven thinking okay no, your faith isn't strong enough, I can't save you that would be Categorically opposed to all that God has shown Himself to be in the Bible. It it would un-Jesus Jesus Jesus to say to weak sinners that they can't come to Him because their faith isn't strong enough. If you have doubted your own faith and you've thought, oh, I, I am so weak in my faith, if it's true faith. If it's legitimate faith, not dead faith, we'll get to James 2, because some of you are wondering about James 2. And we'll get there in the coming weeks. But if it's genuine faith, it doesn't matter how small. If you believe in the promises of God and you're trusting Jesus to be your Savior, rest assured, you are saved. That is the promise all who call upon Him. All who believe. I want to say again, if you're struggling in this area, this is what you're going to be tempted to do. You're going to hold your faith in your hand and you're going to be looking at it from every possible angle. Is it strong enough here? Is it strong enough when I do this? Oh, my faith is so weak here. Oh, how can I increase? Where are all the ways I need to increase my faith? You're going to be looking at it in every possible perspective to try to figure out how can I grow my faith? How? Can, it's not good enough. My faith isn't strong enough. My faith isn't going to save me. What can I do to increase my faith? That will never work. You know how you grow your faith? To grow in confidence, you stop examining your faith and you start examining your savior. And instead of asking, is my faith strong enough? Is my faith alive enough? Is my faith real enough to have enough of the faith? You say, is my Savior loving enough? Is my Savior willing to save? Has He conquered death? Is He alive right now? Does He save sinners? Yes, 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 yes. That will grow your faith. Stop looking at your faith and look at the object of your faith. Stop staring at whether your faith is strong enough and start staring at the strong Savior. You will not grow by staring at faith. You will grow by staring at Christ. I don't know if if there's any better way to describe all that this series is about. You will grow by staring at Jesus Christ and developing a personal relationship with Him. And you will not grow more confidence by self-examination. Many of you have tried that. I have too. It will lead you to despair because you will never measure up. But look to Christ. Our last lie. Very similar, but from a different angle. Lie number four. If I struggle with sin, I cannot be saved. Some conversations about assurance go like this. I'm struggling with assurance. Why are you struggling with assurance? I, I, I'm still sinning. And I sin in this particular way. I still do this. I, I've done these things. It really is a question we ought to ask ourselves. What should a Christian expect in this lifelong sojourn here on earth? Should you expect an increase in the battle, the spiritual warfare that you're waging as you grow older against your sin? Or should you expect a decrease? It's an interesting question. Talk about that later over lunch. But many passages in Scripture make it very clear that you will not overcome sin entirely in this life. 1 John 1.8 if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And if you're saying you have no sin, you're deceived. That's what the Bible says. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Listen to this. A description of what's going on in your heart. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to one another. To keep you from doing the things you want to do flesh and spirit spirit and flesh when you are redeemed you still have the old man that lives within you the old flesh that is accustomed to living in disobedience and you have the spirit and those two forces are opposed listen if you are a christian expect war in your heart i remember as a student at college Uh, We had to go to the chapels and I remember sitting down in this particular chapel and the man that was getting up to preach I did not recognize. I didn't know his name. I knew nothing about him. He wasn't particularly funny. He wasn't charismatic. He was very old. And I remember thinking, I wonder what he's going to have to say that will be relevant to us college students. But he went up there with absolute confidence and there was a weightiness to what he said and he started his first words that I have not forgotten. I have forgotten the rest of what he said but I have not forgotten this. He stood up and he said, if I were to choose one word to describe the Christian life, I would choose the word battle. And he went on to describe how Christians battle Sin. And I remember thinking, look how old he is. He's still battling sin? Really? Like don't you get to the point where you're not really doing that anymore? Like you've overcome that. Like now you're just cruising. You're coasting into heaven. That stuck with me. And it paved a way for me to understand how the Christian life really is Listen, we will never, never, never stop battling if we are truly following Jesus against our sin. And if you are saying, my struggle with sin is an indication that I am not redeemed, think again. Your struggle with sin might be the very indication that you have the Spirit within you who is opposed to the flesh. doesn't necessarily mean because you've battled sin that you are unregenerate and unsaved. I am not saying that it's unimportant. I am not saying that your struggle with sin doesn't matter. I'm saying that if you do have a struggle with sin, it does not necessarily mean you're unredeemed. It does mean you should probably talk to some people, get some help from the church family to walk with you through this. But you, if you're a Christian, should just prepare yourself for a lifelong war campaign against sin in fact one of the one of the things i want to highlight this is kind of off the notes a little bit but for those of you who have walked in the christian faith for many years you're older than us you're farther down the path than than many of us are one of the biggest ways that you can help and disciple and encourage a younger generation is to talk openly about your battle for holiness because it reminds us young people there's a long road ahead and we need to stay faithful to what God has called us to do and be in our fight against sin if you're struggling with sin besetting sin that returns back again and again you keep going to the cross You keep remembering the gospel. And if those things aren't working, well, you know what else God has given you? A church family to bear your burdens. And if you're hiding, it is very hard to bear a burden for you. And the grace of God says that we are no longer defined by our sin, our identity has been fundamentally changed. We are children of grace and as those who are covered by the grace of god we can come out we can confess and we can walk with each other through these difficulties and those of you who are members of our church this is one of your responsibilities is it not to help people cling to christ who struggle with sin i don't want to say that to imply that you don't struggle with sin, because we all are. This is why we're here together, is because sin grows in darkness. Assurance, when it is in the dark alley of isolation, will erode. But assurance and faith is cultivated in community. This is a preview or maybe a commercial. We're going to talk a lot more about that in detail tonight. So I'd encourage you to come back at 5. If you're struggling with sin, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that there is a war, there is a battle going on, and that you can keep looking to Christ and fighting the battle. And your job now is to get people involved in the fight with you so they can grow with you, that they can help you, and you can grow alongside them. Jerry Bridges, to revisit our... Example at the beginning of the sermon said, To experience practical, everyday holiness, we must first accept the fact that God in His infinite wisdom has seen fit to allow this daily battle with indwelling sin. Remember in Genesis, when Jacob wrestled with God, and after he did, he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. We are all walking with a limp. Every one of us. Some of us are really good at putting on a show when we come to church so it doesn't look like it, but we're all walking with a limp. And God has designed the church for us to come into each other's lives and help each other get through. You will not climb out of the pit by yourself. You need a family. You need a family. If you have hidden doubts, come out from the dark. Talk to people. And I guarantee there are people filling these chairs who would be thrilled to walk with you through a dark season you may be going through. Let me ask you, have you believed any of these lies? Do you believe that the Father really loves you? Or are you somewhere deep down wondering, suspicious if the reason he loves you is somehow Jesus manipulated him to change his mind about you? Are you trying to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus? It's hopeless. Try sweeping the Sahara Desert with a broom, getting all that sand away. That's your hope in trying to clean up yourself before coming to Jesus. Jesus can do it. Come to Him. That is repentance. is forsaking self-reliance and looking to Christ. Are you worried that your faith isn't strong enough, deep enough, vibrant enough? You believe all the right things about Christ, about God, about His holiness, about your sin, about Christ's perfect redemption. You're just thinking, I don't believe it enough. Because obviously the way I live, it's my faith isn't strong enough. It's not the strength of the faith, it's the strength of the Savior. Look to Christ. And if you are struggling with sin, and you begin to believe the lie that Satan is telling you, that if you're struggling with sin, you certainly can't be a Christian. Stop looking at that lie and believing it. If struggling as a Christian, or struggling with sin means you're not a Christian, then Martin Luther, David Brainerd, Charles Spurgeon, Jerry Bridges, and Paul are not Christians either. You walk in a long line of men and women who have fought their sin because life with Christ is battle against sin. Now, if you are particularly stuck in besetting sin, come out and let's get help and let's move forward. But don't believe the lie that you're hopeless because you've struggled with sin. We're going to finish now with communion. Here's the wonder of the gospel. It is finished. Right? It is finished. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. The anxiety doesn't need to be there crippling your heart. You can look to Christ by faith and be saved. And when we take communion, we are reminded that we are unworthy to come to the table. But Christ invites us anyway because we now know that our worth to God is not based in what we've done. He loves us in spite of what we've done. He's invited us in by the blood of Christ to be His sons and daughters. Focus on Jesus Christ. So you who are weary and you who are burdened and those of you sinners, those of you who are struggling, those of you who are trying to clean yourself up, whoever you are, in your repentance, and by faith you come to Jesus. He is your hope. Now, we believe that the table of communion is for those who have professed faith in Christ and have demonstrated that in baptism. So we're going to invite all baptized Christians to partake of the communion table. The directions, just real quick, Hans is going to come up and play Jesus paid it all. During that song, feel free to make your way to the table and grab the elements. We a—we uh, might not have enough cups. <laughs> so there's some bigger cups over there. And if you're willing, husbands and wives, to share, you know, you take a sip and hand it to your spouse, grab one of those. For the rest of us, grab one of the small ones. And I hope you're gracious if you came up and there's not enough left for you. Uh, we do it every month, so come back next month. We'll sing Jesus paid it all. After we sing that, we'll take the elements together and we'll finish by singing Jesus, thank you. Would you join me in prayer? So Lord, we confess again our unworthiness, but we look to Christ. We are not saved because we are worthy. We are not saved because we have great faith. We are not saved because we stopped struggling with sin. We are saved because the Father in His amazing, abounding, wonderful love has sent His Son to be our Savior. And so we cling to Christ. That is the foundation of our hope. So thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.